some people try to show me some of their memories about like uh, back home and some memories or photos were taken. Nora Al-Jazawi's home movies are a little different than you'd expect. They don't capture her at birthday parties or running around a garden or show her parents in hopelessly outdated clothes holding her, mugging for the camera. She grew up in an entirely different world from that. In fact, her home movies don't have any identifiable characters at all. Like this short video, just two hands spray-painting a call to democracy on a wall. There's music blaring in the background. And even that carried some risks. What if authorities somehow could recognize those hands? Her friend used to joke about that. And even I remember he was telling me, like, do you know that they could see the video and recognize my head and then arrest me and maybe cut this hand? <laughs> I was like, no, stop saying that. Even in the relative anonymity of a mass demonstration, Turns out, there was no guarantee of safety. That was just the reality of growing up in Syria. You were always being watched. The regime back then got new surveillance technology to identify the, uh, the locations, the exact locations of people through tracking their uh, SIM cards. So the regime could identify back then my location through GPS and so on. SIM cards, GPS tracking, we've always known that technology can be a double-edged sword. What we hadn't expected was how easy it would be for those bad actors to buy it, completely openly. So now, if you're a despot or an autocrat, you can order up a sophisticated, privatized subversion campaign against any target as easy as ordering a sweater on eBay or Amazon. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here. Today, the commercialization of surveillance technology and how it's allowing governments to export repression around the world. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily. From Recorded Future News, it serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. So it was sort of in your blood to be an activist. Yeah, absolutely. I believe like it's my fate. It was my fate since the very first moment of my life. <laughs> Nora Al-Jazawi laughs about it now, but advocacy came as naturally to her as breathing. I was one of the uh, people who dream of have a better country, better life for our people. 
We fought for democracy even before the uprising. Before the uprising. She means before the Arab Spring back in 2010. Al-Jazawi was born in the 1980s, and she grew up in a well-educated family, which in Syria during the Assad regime could be a dangerous thing. People who are well-educated, they have their own kind of thoughts and opinions. And, and at the time, Syrians with their own thoughts and opinions often went missing. About missing persons, so Mysteriously, they just vanish. If I want to visualize it as a kid back then, like there is this family photo, but there is a person who's, who doesn't exist. Someone the younger children in the neighborhood remembered, but couldn't quite place. They were like having their dads, uh, their fathers disappeared, forcibly disappeared. They were told when they were children that your dad is, for instance, is working abroad. Eventually, it wasn't just the dads that disappeared. But we'll get to that in a minute. People were so afraid about talking and telling even the, the children about what happened to their fathers when they disappeared. And the small handful of fathers who did return, they came back broken. We call them back from the dead. The first one I met was our neighbor. And, oh my gosh, I, I can now even remember the details about how he was walking, how much traumatized he was. Uh, how he spent more than 10 years in the detention, in the private cell, in total darkness. And the vast majority of the community were trying to avoid him just to stay safe. Not because they disagree with what he did or because they consider him as an enemy, but because they know that the regime is watching. We grew up having this, like, you can feel like it's a collective fear. We even, like, grew up listening and being told by our parents that walls have ears. So when we start learning how to go online, we had this inside us. There was a voice in my head telling me that the regime is watching. Nora began meeting activists and political dissidents when she was in college. That's when she began to realize that people were detained just because of what they'd written or something that they'd said. She was sitting in a lecture at the university the first time the authorities came for her. And, uh, yeah, back then I was arrested from the university. She was riding in a bus the second time, and then she became one of the disappeared. And I, I was ready from inside, I was ready for that, but all of my focus was how to stay strong and uh, smart and awake to be able to protect the others and uh, not say anything. Did, did you have a strategy? How did you end up staying strong and not and protecting the others? I don't know. Maybe surviving all the time. Uh, it was not an option. She grew up in a world in which she was always being careful. So she didn't crack, didn't give up her friends, didn't give in to interrogation. They finally released her after seven months. After I was released, my uh, younger sister was arrested and uh, she was tortured a lot because of me and in addition to her activism. But yeah, when she was released, 
she really needed like medical care and so on. Her sister became like one of those fathers Nora had seen so many years ago, broken souls back from the dead. So this is when the family decided that Nora needed to leave Syria, and she took her sister to Turkey. In our communities, women are more vulnerable than men. More vulnerable because in Arab society, a woman's reputation is everything. Rumors of what happened in prison, whispers about lost virtue. These can lead to not just shunning, but death. Nora had seen it before when she was in prison. She remembers meeting a woman who was there who was too scared to be released. I, I remember when she was refusing to talk to a lawyer. She was refusing even to file a paper asking for a release or so on. And she was saying, no, the, the best place for me to be protected is here. And it was unbelievable. He was asking her, how do you feel like in prison you will be protected? She said, yeah, once I will be released, there is these misogynist consequences waiting for me. And while Nora had trouble appreciating why prison would provide an odd sense of safety, she came to understand it all too well. Later, Nora and her sister would be under constant threat of sexual violence, and technology would make it worse. Unfortunately, with the growing market of digital surveillance technology, the regime had more tools of digital repression. The regime, yeah, definitely used all of these kinds of technology to repress people and to, to target them domestically. And then the long arm of despotism followed Nora overseas. This is Click Here. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Nora al-Jazawi was in Turkey for four years. And in a very real sense, the Assad regime and its allies in Iran were right there with her. I don't believe that regime stopped chasing me ever, even when I was in Turkey. Uh, I, between the moment I crossed the borders to Turkey and the moment I flew to Canada, I had approximately four years of activism in Turkey, but I believe that there was no single moment that the regime left me alone. They harassed her family members, doxed her online, sent phishing emails. They even waged disinformation campaigns. Their message, we know how to find you and everyone you love. A lot of, like, even some death threats, direct or indirect. Um, some of them were online, but others were offline too. In Turkey, Nora continued speaking out against the Assad regime, organizing, even working for the opposition party. And years after moving there, she got an email that looked suspicious. It came from a group called Assad Crimes. She was politically active, and she'd never heard of them. It seemed fake. I didn't open the, uh, the attachment, but instead I told my, my husband, hey, Bahar, there is something wrong, and I think you should see that. 
Then he took a look at it, and it was... Her husband was a cyber expert, and they brought the email to Citizen Lab. That's a project at University of Toronto focusing on digital espionage that targets civil society and people like Nora. What they found were little digital fingerprints that led right to Iran, which was backing the Assad regime at the time. IP addresses, malware code that seemed to come from a malware online marketplace based in the Iranian city of Shiraz, and it was trying to get her to click on it. So the attachment, it seems like something uh, badly designed, uh, social engineering uh, attempt to, uh, to pursue me to open it. It turns out it was part of a broader campaign of digital repression Syria had launched against opposition activists who had left the country. Nora was just one of many targets. And the goal was to break into Nora's network, steal her contacts, and then use her name to compromise other members of the opposition and target them too. It was not only the, uh, the attachment, but be- behind that there was a, an entire domain booked under my name. And if it, it would have a chance to see the, <laughs> the light, it would be a massive uh, phishing campaign targeting a lot of people. Is, in a way, it more insidious because you know that regimes may be inside your personal devices, they may be in your pocket? How, how is it different? Yeah, I remember <laughs> and when I started realizing what the, uh, what the regime could do is they could have access, literally, to everything. Not only to my personal data, because when they arrested me, they had access to my laptop, to my device. But I was in somehow trying to, to control what kind of information to keep on my laptop. But once the threat could be in your device, in your pocket, in your mobile phone, you can't have control. The risk is not only about our personal information, but the risk is could be like revealing the networks of activists who are still acting back home, harming them, could cause them their life. And as surveillance technology becomes more mainstream, the problem of what has essentially become despotism as a service or surveillance for hire goes beyond individual targets like Nora or regimes like Assad's. It could end up targeting any of us. And to me, this is uh, perhaps the greatest threat to liberal democracy right now. When you, when you stand back and you look at the factors leading to all of this. That's Ron Diebert. He founded and now runs the Citizen Lab. Back in 2016, he found Nora's experience so remarkable that the Citizen Lab produced a report about it. It looked at how repressive regimes continue to target people like her after they've left the country. He even hired her to help with other research. Then, just two years later, this happened. A U.S. intelligence report has concluded that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman personally approved the murder of the exiled journalist Jamal Khashoggi in 20. Suddenly, digital repression was about more than just online harassment. It was about murder. We discovered that a Saudi permanent resident in Canada had his phone hacked by Saudi Arabia using Pegasus. Pegasus, that's spyware manufactured by an Israeli company called the NSO Group. And although we didn't know it at the time, uh, right up to the day we published, in fact, 
Omar Abdulaziz and the murdered Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi were very close confidants. Omar Abdul Aziz was in Canada when he got a message that looked like it was from DHL. It was about a pending shipment. He thought it was about protein powder, and he remembers clicking it. And just like that, the Saudi government had access to all of Abdul Aziz's online communication with Khashoggi. They had been communicating privately over many, many weeks and months over what they thought was an end-to-end encrypted messaging application, WhatsApp. Um, but the whole time, Saudi operatives had been monitoring from afar. And among other things, the messages laid out a project Khashoggi had wanted to fund. He wanted to buy foreign SIM cards so activists could open Twitter accounts and criticize the Saudi government. Just a short time later, he was killed. With Omar, uh, clearly he experienced horrible trauma, just knowing that his hack device may have contributed to the murder of his good friend. It, it just left him unfortunately damaged, uh, and, he, and he grapples with it to this day. Much of this is possible because of something the Citizen Lab calls despotism as a service. Autocrats use commercial surveillance to target citizens overseas. The way many of them do it is simple. They buy the access from private companies like NSO Group, the Israeli company we talked about earlier. So if you look at NSO Group, to give you one example, what is their business model? It's basically hacking. It's basically providing government clients with the ability to get inside a device. And they are very capable. For years now, the NSO group has been able to crack into mobile devices with something called zero-click. Essentially, it allows a hacker to break into a phone, even if no one clicks on a malicious link or attachment. The hack doesn't require social engineering or a crafty email. It just exploits security flaws in the phone's operating system. And it's becoming a big business. Anyone with enough money can buy that access without having to go to all the trouble of traditional surveillance. Think about Saudi Arabia eavesdropping on Omar Abdulaziz in Canada. They would have, would have had to send agents to actually, you know, get inside his apartment, put bugs in his space. And even then the information wouldn't be that, that useful because he'd have to be talking about something right next to the, to the bug. Um, but now with a push of a button, they can get inside his head. This is remarkable in terms of the capacity that's been unleashed here. A new report from Citizen Lab, which Nora El-Jazawi helped write, looks at what that really means, the psychological toll this all takes. Even I remember when he was in detention and under torture, in the interrogation, I was able to make control on the information I would tell. What kind of information? I have this control on everything how much information I feel like it's safe to share with them. But when it comes to the digital, transnational digital oppression and having spy in your pocket, taking this spy everywhere, even to your bed, to your very personal meetings, very personal talks, it's like something you can't have control over it. The experiences of Omar and, and Nora were not unique. It, it is very common for people to experience this type of psychological trauma uh, and, and the insidious nature of fear, um, how debilitating that can be to a person. Uh, you no longer trust the device in your hand. Uh, you no longer look at email the same way. It seems like every link is suspicious. Um, you begin to realize that this is having a, a dramatic impact on civil society. 
Activists have to worry about their messages being read, about their friends being targeted, and the safety of their families at home. And Diebert says women seem to be a favored target. Who had, you know, photos taken from their device and then used as potential blackmail to try to silence them. Um, and, and of course, you know, the misogyny around a lot of the autocrats that we're talking about is well known. So it's a very potent, awful combination of harms that we're talking about here. When was the last time you got something on your phone that you found worrisome? Last week. Wow. Yeah, I always have like, okay, I have my own precautions, but I'm always anxious about the possibility and I can't think about one day I felt like 100% safe. Nora Al-Jazawi has a daughter now, and she's met Syrian refugees, and what they've said scares her. This morning I had a very tough discussion with my daughter. She's four years old, and she, was, she knew about uh, a new family came from their Syrian refugees, recently arrived in Canada. They left everything behind, and they came to Canada because it's safe. And she said, Mommy, I don't want you to go to Syria. I want you to to stay here, and I want us to stay here in Canada forever because Canada is safe. Except, as Nora's learned, nowhere is really safe anymore. It's so hard to assure my little one that we are safe in Canada. But she's doing her best to create new memories for them both. This is Click Here. Uh, my name is Dmitry Cherepanov. Uh, professional name is Dmitry Brain. Cherepanov in Russian language, it's Brain. 45-year-old Dmitry Cherepanov is a self-described computer geek. Uh, my work, uh, it's creating websites for business in Ukraine. I have developed... And for the past 20 years, when he's not working his day job, he's been collecting something unusual, old retro computers. 120 computers, almost entire models uh, line of computers, Atari, uh, Commodore, uh, portable computers, uh, IBM, Compaq, and many Soviet computers of different models. Dmitry used to give tours of the museum to anyone who came. It all began with his love of computers. Started with a few antiques, then, he says, he got a little carried away. He found Soviet-era computers, something known as ZX Spectrums. They were really popular back in Soviet times because all you needed was a circuit board and a soldering iron to build one yourself. Dmitry ended up collecting so many computers, he built a retro computer museum to house them all, a kind of workshop-looking place not far from his apartment in Mariupol, Ukraine. Uh, computers are another world. Uh, it's uh, like a parallel universe without borders. 
I have always been inspired by what computers give us. But the real world intruded last month. Russian bombs rained down on Mariupol, and Dmitry Chirupanov had to flee with his family, leaving the more than 500 exhibits in his computer museum behind. He found out from a neighbor that it had been destroyed in the fighting. The last time I was in the museum was 14th of March. I was uh, depressed and upset because I had lost everything, everything uh, that was dear to me in my hometown, where I had uh, lived for 45 years. Complete destruction. Nothing left of the city. He hasn't seen the destruction yet. He and his family have rented an apartment in a town about an hour away to wait out the war. He's holding out hope that something is left of his retro computer museum when he gets back. Maybe some of the more than 500 computer pieces he has there can be saved. i am created a new museum. Uh, it's uh, hard to plan uh, right now. Our life uh, starts from scratch. War is uh, always destruction and death. War is always destruction and death, he says. His plan is to get back to his home, rebuild, and then he'll think about his hobby. This is Click Here. Here are a few of the top cyber and intelligence stories of the past week. The record reported that the U.S. intelligence community has started work on its strategy to win renewal of the surveillance powers allowed under Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The authorizations are supposed to sunset at the end of next year unless they're extended by Congress. The last time they came up for renewal was in early 2018. And the special surveillance powers allow the federal government to collect emails and electronic communications of foreign intelligence targets from U.S. companies like Google. It can also incidentally vacuum up American personal data. Last Wednesday night, the Senate confirmed Army Major General Maria Barrett as the next chief of Army Cyber Command, a three-star general billet. The promotion will make her the first woman to lead the organization since it was established in 2010. And finally, the City of London Police announced on Friday that it had charged two teenagers, a 16-year-old and a 17-year-old, in connection with the Lapsus Gang's cybercrimes. Among other things, it recently breached the identity authorization company Okta. Each teenager faces three counts of unauthorized access to a computer and one count of fraud. The 16-year-old also faces one count of causing a computer to perform a function to secure unauthorized access to a program, police said. Because of strict privacy rules in the UK, the teens have not been named publicly. Today's episode was produced by Sean Powers and Will Jarvis, and it was edited by Lou Olkowski, with fact-checking from Darren Ancrum. 
Ben Levingston composed our theme and original music for the episode, and we had additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Click Here is a production of The Record Media. And we want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts. And you can connect with us at clickhereshow.com. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.